Good morning. Uh, reading from John 4, 27 to 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food, is, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then when the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Matt. He really wanted to read the whole passage, but I said, hey, you got a limited job here today. Uh, cut it down for him. Well, uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, my name's Ben. I am the assistant pastor here, and we are thrilled to have you worship with us in this season. Uh, last week, we were actually down at, with our sister church, Christ Quest, but throughout this fall, if you have been around Redeemer, we have been working together to try and answer this question. Who do we want to be? Who do we want to be as, as a church of people who who uh, live out and reflect the kingdom of God here at our little corner of, of Cooper and Cowden, coming out of uh, this season of pandemic, coming out of staffing changes, coming out of uh, new, new faces in and around Memphis. We want to revisit this question that we've talked about lots of times before, but it is it's this. It's, it's what does it look like? What does it look like for us to be the church of Jesus Christ here and now and in this place? And so we've answered that question in numerous different ways over the fall, but today we're going to answer the question this way. We want to be a witnessing church, a church that, that is, is so captivated with the story of Jesus's redemption of the world, the coming of his kingdom, that we uh, reimagine our lives in, in light of that coming kingdom, and, and we reimagine our neighborhood, Midtown, in light of his truth and his justice and his peace and his purity coming to bear in this place. And so we do that in all sorts of different ways. We do that with, with, by building friendships with people who are not like us. We do that by, by using our gifts and our talents and our trainings and our various vocations and places of Work. We do that by uh, seeking to, to, to confront areas of injustice and, and to confront areas of deep need in our city. But we also do that by using our words. We reflect the coming kingdom of Jesus in our lives and in our lifestyles and by the way that we treat people. But we also use words to 
to articulate that, to tell people what God has done. And it is clear throughout the scriptures that, that it is Jesus's intention. Even here with his disciples, he says, look, there's this harvest. There are people who need to know about what I have done, what I am doing, and what I will do in the future. And he's inviting us to be a part of that. And so whether you call it witnessing, whether you call it evangelism, there's a clear move in the in the in the the, the story of the Bible, that we are to be people who reflect that goodness of Jesus in our conversations with friends and, and colleagues and family members. The problem comes in, how do you do that? Indeed, when I say those words evangelism or, or witnessing or things like that, many of you probably uh, picture an interaction sort of like this one. Uh, these two anonymous characters, there's Ben um, he's very anonymous. It couldn't possibly be me. Um, and there's Tyler, this lifelong friend. Y'all you, you didn't laugh. Okay, that was me. I'm Ben. My name's Ben. Yeah, thank you. I need that feedback. Uh, and there's this person that we'll call Tyler. Tyler is a, a friend of mine, an acquaintance of mine. I never knew him really well, but we grew up all the way through, from kindergarten through 12th grade, going to the same school, being involved in the same uh, believe it or not, band and, and choir. We, we were uh, a part of the same activities. We played on the same tennis team in high school. Um, and so after we had graduated and we'd mo- moved off to our respective college campuses, uh, we found ourselves coming back together with a group of, of high school friends. I don't know, maybe it was fall break or something like that, our, our freshman year of college. But I came back from a a college where I was a part of a campus ministry that really emphasized Jesus's calling on our lives to to put words, uh, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the name of Jesus. And so I came back with this whole load of, of realization that that didn't exist in my life. I didn't have unbelieving friends. I didn't have unbelieving colleagues. I hadn't been prone to 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 inform them or let them know about Jesus and so I came ready to make a sale. I came, and as we were riding back at, at midnight from a little late-night run to Steak and Shake, we were in the car in the back seat of my friend's uh, Subaru. Uh, what's his name? Tyler and I. Uh, Tyler and I were in the back seat, and I, I saw the chance to give my pitch, right? And I came at it with all this pent-up guilt, all this pent-up shame, all this p- p- pent-up energy. And it was like a, you know, timeshare rep meets car salesman meets, uh, you know, multi-level marketing associate, right? Um, and I thought I did awesome. I thought, you know, I, I gave him all this apologetic information. I told him how it connected to his life. I told him about Jesus. Uh, and we, we went our separate ways that night. And I just felt like a million bucks. Finally, I had done what Jesus had told me to do, I had presented the gospel, and I felt about a million bucks until the next morning when I woke up with a letter from Tyler, a letter that, that, that tore into me in places that I didn't know that I needed to be torn into, that when I confronted him in that time and that space about something so private and so personal, he felt like he had been taken advantage of. That when I had, had gone off on my uh, 
my superior lifestyle that I was taking advantage of him or that I was, or was presenting myself as being superior to him in some way. That it was wrong for me to engage him in that fashion. And the likelihood is, is, is that maybe you can see where he's coming from. In fact, there was a 2019 Barna study that came out um, looking specifically at different age groups of Christians, but professing Christians who are in the millennial generation. Um, and they were asking questions about evangelism and, and asking questions about their comfort level with them. And some fascinating findings. 94% of Christian millennials say that the best thing that they could ever hap- that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. 94% agreed with that statement that the best thing that could happen in the lives of, of any human on earth is that they come to know Jesus. But 47% of those Christian millennials also agreed or strongly or somewhat agreed with this statement. It's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will someday share the same faith as you do. 94% said the best thing that could happen is for them to come to know Jesus. 47% said, but it's wrong for me to be the one that tells them that. And so many of us feel like we're stuck in this place. We've been trained, we've been taught, if you grew up in in an evangelical church, how to give a sales pitch about Jesus, how to to turn a conversation towards Jesus. Maybe you've been trained in some questions to ask about Jesus, and yet when you do so, you feel like you're a different person. You feel like you're selling a timeshare. You feel like you're um, you're, you're, you're selling a product. And yet, and on the other end, we're told by a world that says, you do you, that, that we ought have nothing to say about someone else's life or, or about the hope that is in there. And so it feels like the two choices we have to be, quote unquote, good people is either to choose a sales pitch mentality or to choose silence. But I don't think that's the way that Jesus intends for us to live. I don't think that either a sales pitch nor silence is an appropriate response to the gospel. In fact, as I read this story, I wonder, what if sharing our faith is the most natural outgrowth of being a human, of being a friend? And so we come to this passage, a passage that Jesus clearly intends to teach his disciples what it looks like to become a witness, to become a a person who shares what God is doing in the world. And John includes it here in the gospel for us so that we too could learn what this looks like. And I want to suggest as we go through this story that there's there's three different movements that we see as Jesus makes a witness for himself, as he finds this woman and she becomes a witness who bears a testimony to the goodness of God. Three movements. There's first is that she is undone by the, the grace that is shown to her. The second is that she, uh, she leaves that conversation with Jesus with a grace-filled compassion for those who do not know Jesus. And the third is that she has a grace-fueled courage, that she has a courage that is not of herself or not of her own making, but one that has been given to her. So the first, if you are endeavoring to uh, live in God's world, and if you are uh, like I am convinced that Jesus' design for you is that you would 
tell about your story, to tell your story of what God has done in your world. But you don't want to be a salesman, and you don't want to choose silence. The first movement that must occur in your life is that you must be undone by grace. This woman, as we meet her, we don't even know her name. We know uh, so little of her story, but what we do know about her makes her an extremely unlikely candidate to be an exemplar of faith, to be an exemplar follower of Jesus. What we know about this woman, almost in every tidbit we learn of her life, is that she is a rejected woman. First, that she is a woman who is rejected by men. You can see it in that first verse that Matt read for us a second ago, right? His disciples come back and they find Jesus talking to this woman and they go, what are you doing talking to a woman? Right? You have to understand that, that the patriarchy is so thick in the ancient times that for a man to be talking to a woman who, is, who he is not married to is, is entirely scandalous. When men would have thought a woman beneath their conversation level, and that was the way the world worked, but it was not the way that Jesus worked. And to a woman who's conditioned to be rejected by man, Jesus comes with a conversation. But she's not just rejected for being a woman, she's rejected for being a Samaritan. In verse 9, we didn't read it, but you can see her first response. She engages at this conversation. Jesus is sitting by a, a well, and she comes to draw water, and Jesus engages her, and she goes, what are you doing? What are you ta- why are you talking to me? Look, I'm a Samaritan. I'm of a, I'm of a, of a different race. I'm of a different religion. I, we, you and I do not share this space Together, you hate me, uh, my, your people hate my people, my people hate your people. So she's not just a, a woman who's been rejected by men, she's a Samaritan who's been rejected by Jews. But we find out more about her story. We find in the course of their conversation that she has a pretty tragic backstory. We don't know the details. We don't know the, the, the story or the scenario, but it comes out in the conversation that, that she has had five different husbands and that she was living now with, with a man who was not her husband. We don't know, uh, we know nothing of the story of why those, those divorces occurred in her life, but what we do know is that in the ancient world, divorce was not something that was initiated by a woman. So this woman, having gone through five marriages, we know that she has had the, the, the man that she thought would protect her, the, she, the, the man that she thought would, would provide stability, would provide means of living. The, the, the man who would validate her experience has looked at her and says, you've got to go. I'm done with you. Time after time after time after time the person she trusted most with her security, the person she trusted most with her well-being has told her she was not good enough. And then the kicker. The kicker is that this woman comes to the well of Jesus at about the noon hour. And almost every scholar that I've read on this passage agrees that this is something really bizarre. It's really bizarre because... Uh, in, a, in a town like this woman lived in, the, the women uh, would gather together early in the morning in the cool of the day, and they would, as a social group, go to the well to draw the water that their family needed for the day. So not only is this woman coming alone, 
without friends as her companions, but she's coming in at the noon hour, long after everyone else has made this trek and gone back. And it certainly seems that the implication of this is that this woman has not been just rejected as a woman, not just rejected as a Samaritan, not just rejected as a wife, but that she's been rejected as a member of the society. That she has, is a social outcast that is not included in the part of the, the social ebb and flow of the town. And yet, somehow... Somehow in the midst of all this rejection or somehow in the midst of all this pain, we see that she has constructed ways to protect herself, ways to adapt to her life, right? She, we, we are told that she, uh, she has figured out a way, how to meet her material needs of water without exposing herself to the gaze and the shame of the people who disliked her the most, right? She had, she had found a way to get through day after day after day by simply changing her, her, her pattern by becoming a loner. She had uh, found security and comfort. She found affirmation in the arms of, of some other man. And whether it didn't need to be called a marriage for her as long as she had a place to feel safe and a place to be, uh, to be loved. She found a way and in, in, in apparently some way to comfort herself in her religion. And she talks with Jesus, she is not uh, somebody unfamiliar with the storyline of, of her religion. In fact, it's pretty clear that she holds a lot of weight and, and deep care about the future coming of a Messiah that would free her from life's burdens. She was a woman who was deeply wounded, deeply rejected, but she had built structures into her life to get through the day-to-day tasks. And then came Jesus. And Jesus comes into her life, and he looks at the house of straw that she has made for herself. He looks at this house of twigs that she has thought would protect her from uh, the, the feelings of alienation and, and protect her from the, 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 the elements and protect her from all of the threats against her life. And Jesus undoes them all. Because a woman whose whole story had been that she was rejected, that she was neglected, that she was no good for anything, comes to a well and finds a Jewish man alone who not just engages her in conversation, but he promises her living water. He says, I see the pain and the calluses that have built up in your life, and I am here to offer you a way out. I'm offering here a, a way to satisfy your deepest needs. I imagine that as she hears this offer from this man she doesn't even know, I, I have to imagine that she's blown away. How could this man who doesn't even know me, how could he offer me something of such value? How could this man who does not even know me care to converse, converse with me even? But what comes next undoes her. Because you see, it's not just that he is kind to her or that he he shows her love when he doesn't know her. It's that he shows her love because he does know her. See, she thought her story, her, her past, her marriages, her failings were hidden from this Jewish man. But in verse 16, Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. A woman answered at him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. 
what you have said is true. And in that moment, she realized this man who is being so kind, this man who has offered me this living water does not offer it because he is ignorant of my failings, but because he knows my failings. Tim Keller's gotten a lot of mileage off of reminding us of our human nature, right? To be loved, but not known. It's comforting, but at the end of the day, it's superficial. But to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be known and loved, to be fully known, to be known, your whole story to be known, and yet Jesus says, I have a plan for you. I want you to be a part of my family. It completely undoes her house of straw that she has built for herself. Because in that moment, she realizes that her freedom does not come from avoiding the, cra- the, the gaze of the, the skeptical crowd around her. Her freedom didn't come from avoiding criticism. It, freedom came when she sat under the gaze of one who loved her to her bones. That uh, she found in Jesus that love and security did not come from finding some man, any man who would overlook her, 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 her sexual past, her marital past, her, her reputation. Her love and security didn't come from some man who would overlook her past, but from a man who saw her past and said, I want you to be a part of my future. Love and security could come only when grace had torn down the, 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 the straw house that she had built. And you can see it in verse 29, right? Her big evangelistic presentation that she offers to the world, her big apologetic that she sees as she says, this is completely unworldly. This is completely different from anything I've ever experienced. She says, look, here's a man who has told me everything that I've ever done. He saw me to my core, and he loved me the same. And so for her, Jesus makes all the sense of the world, and sharing that Jesus with the townspeople makes all the sense in the world. And I bring this up because if we're going to talk about being a witnessing church, if we're going to be a a people who say, we have seen Jesus on the move in our midst, we've seen Jesus transform our lives, then we must first and foremost be people who allow the grace of Jesus to undo our lives, to undo the sticks and the straw that we use to try and, and, and find security, right? To, to undo our, our intuitive reflex, to, to seek acceptance from people by hiding our flaws and by um, hiding from the scrutiny of other people. If we're going to be people who say, we have seen Jesus move, then we have to be people who are willing to be undone by the grace of Jesus. If you don't have the grace of Jesus, then, then you can't help. You can't help but be a salesman, or you can't help to choose silence, because you have nothing by which to share. But for those who have been undone by grace comes the next. This woman is filled with a grace-filled compassion. Look at the motive of what she is doing, a compassion that compels her towards people. You see, one of the problems in our world when, we, we, uh, when folks hear us talk about Jesus or hear folks tell our, our life story is what they hear is us saying, I figured out the world. You haven't. Let me inform you. I'm right. You're wrong. Let me show you the way. But if 
we're a people who have been undone by grace, and that narrative just doesn't work. In fact, when we've become undone with grace, we are given an urgency. Look at verse 28. The woman uh, says she left the water jar and went away into town to said to the people, right? Her immediate response, remember, she'd lugged all this way just for water, right? It wasn't like she took the water, she's like, here, let me go drop this off at home, and then I'll come back um, and go find some people. It wasn't like, huh, let me think about this, and I'll uh, get back to y'all in a couple months. There was an immediate response because she knew who lived in that community. The people that she tried to hide from all other times, she realized that this Jesus who could undo my house of straw, he could undo everyone else's huts of straw that lives around me. She knew the people of her town longed for a Messiah who would make sense of their world, who would make sense of their life experience. And it is compassion. It is compassion, not paternalism. It is compassion and empathy that drives her to talk to these people. Because someone who has been transformed, who has received a grace, can't help but long for that grace in the people that are near them. Right? I can prove this to you. Some of you all uh, are Memphians, and, uh, and over the next few months, there will be some folks who are new to our city, right? And they will tell you that they went and that they ate at the Applebee's, right? And your heart will be filled with compassion for them. And you will say, no, what are you doing going to Applebee's? Don't you know that Hog and Hominy just opened? Have you never been to Flight? Have you never been to any of these great restaurants that we are a part of? Watch. If, you're new to, if you've only been here a couple of years, you will be approached by many restaurant evangelists in our midst, right? And we do it with our, our kids' schools, right? If you have a, a school that you send your child to and it's been a nurturing place, it's been a successful place to help you as a family raise your children, what are you going to do? You're going to put a sign in your yard. You're going to put a bumper sticker on the back of your car, right? You're going to tell people, hey, have you considered fill-in-the-blank school? Because you've felt that insecurity as a, as a preschool mom or dad, and you want to relieve that for someone else, right? You do what we do with, our, uh, with, with these little things, right? As an Android user, right, I have compassion on all you Apple users, right, for your inferior devices, and I want to I convey to you that there is a better way to go about life. It's natural. It's human. You get the point, right? It's human to want uh, to, to, to share what is good and what is beautiful, what is affirming in your life. It is natural if you are a person who uh, is a cancer survivor, that when you hear a story, even of a distant acquaintance who has just received their diagnosis, you feel that dark night of the soul. You know the pain and the fear uh, that accompanies those words coming out of a doctor's mouth. And you can't help but move towards that person. You can't help but seek their good, seek their comfort, seek the uh, answer the questions that they might have about what's happening in their life. And in the same way, if we're to be a witnessing church, we're going to be people who live with neighbors and coworkers in this space. And, and as they wrestle with what their lives, uh, the meaning of their life or the meaning of their suffering is, you can't help but say, I too wrestle with that. 
I too at times feel like I have no meaning in life, that suffering is, is emptiness and, 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 and hollow, that death is, that life is bitter. But there's one story. There's one experience in my life that tells me that that is not true. And that's the story that Jesus tells of the world. Right? We're going to be people who live in this space. And when our friends are so feeling the insecurity and, and the vulnerability, right, that, that their life just doesn't matter. And so they're perform, putting on a performance and they're putting on a charade, right? When they're condemning and belittling others, we, we see that and we know that pain. And you say, I have performed and I want to perform all the time to make people like me, but let me tell you, there's this one story of the world that tells something different, that you have value and worth as a creation of God in his world, right? You're going to see neighbors that want to pursue justice, but as they pursue justice, they start oppressing other people because there's no other narrative of the world that makes sense of our need for justice other than the story of Jesus making the world right. It is compassion that moves us to tell, tell of others. And when that compassion comes out, it is not just a, a, a generic compassion, but it is a grace-filled, grace-saturated kind of compassion. Look at the way that she approaches her neighbors. This woman very clearly is, is bought hook, line, and sinker into this Jesus thing, right? She's gone to people that she appears to, to want to avoid. She's gone, and she has told them, acknowledged her life story in their midst, right? But how does she phrase it when she talks to them? In verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She says, I know the, the, the stories of the, the longings that you have in your world, and I'm on the same page. I found this story. Does this make sense? Does this make sense of your, of your understanding of the world, of your experience of the world? Right? And, and, and instead of approaching these people and being like, your views of the world are deeply incoherent. Your views of God are so wrong. Your, your, your lifestyle is so offensive to me. What did she say? She said, there is one who made sense of my world that I, my world has never made sense of before. She validates their beliefs and takes them seriously. She, she's patient. She's vulnerable with her own story. She's respectful, willing to listen. She's not surprised or disgusted by their lives. Why? Well, look at the way that Jesus treated her. He comes to this woman, this uh, anonymous woman, and, he, and Jesus, the, the maker and sustainer and redeemer of, of the world, comes to this woman, and he has a theological conversation with her. He bats around the economy of ideas. Jesus comes to this woman, and he, he sits in her story, and he sits in her pain with her. Jesus comes to this woman and he humbles himself to share a drink of water with her. You see, Jesus has treated this woman with such grace that when she approaches her friends, when she approaches her neighbors, when she approaches the, the, the random townspeople who she's never liked to begin with, she can't help but go with patience, with, with, with grace, with humility. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus who bears witness to what he is doing in the world, if you've been undone 
by the grace of Jesus, then you will be compelled by compassion, not, pay, not paternalism, that you will be marked in your witness with grace. If you want to avoid being a salesperson or being silent, you need a grace-filled compassion. But there's a third thing. There's a third thing that you need, and that is courage. A courage that doesn't come from yourself, but is fueled by grace. If you think about uh, this calling of God on your life, right, to, 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 to do what this woman did, right, which is to build a bridge. She took what she knew about, uh, uh, about Jesus, and she went to the people with whom she knew needed Jesus, and she said, here, let me make the introduction. Let me take you across this bridge to this man who told me all that I ever did and loved me the same. She says, let me take you to this place. She builds a bridge going to need courage to do that in our world. You're going to need courage to do that in our world because we do live in a world that is not particularly fond of being told that there's something else in, in existence. You're going to need courage in, in, in numerous different ways, and I'll just say these quickly, right? You're going to need courage because it's going to mean that you're going to have to make some, some different life choices. Way back in, in verse 4, when Jesus is, uh, uh, at the outset of this, it tells us that Jesus is traveling from one region in the south to one region in the north. And it, it uses this peculiar word. It says that Jesus, um, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It's a bizarre sort of phrase because anyone who studies life in, in Israel at this time would tell you that that he didn't have to go through that way. Sure, going through Samaria was like the most direct route. But in fact, it was more common for Jewish uh, men and women to travel on, on two other roads that headed north. That he could have bypassed this whole uncomfortable situation entirely. We know that he wasn't in a rush. He stuck around for two or three days after this encounter with the woman. So why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Well, it certainly seems that the implication is he had to go through Samaria because he had to talk to these people. Because there was people who needed the grace of his life. He needed his grace to unmake sense of the world. And so he goes. He didn't go the route that was most comfortable. He didn't go the route with the people who he felt most comfortable with. He goes to seek out those people who need his grace. If you're going to be a, a witness to Jesus, it, it kind of implies that you have people in your life, people that you spend time with in your life who need the grace of Jesus, who don't know about the story of Jesus. If you're going to build a bridge to Jesus, you, there has to be someone that you're building a bridge to, right? But we're really good about going, traveling the outside routes. We're really good at, at circumventing the relationships with people who, who have different politics, who have different view of, of the world, whose, whose uh, morality is of, 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 a, of a different sort than ours, right? Whose lifestyle choices we uh, don't agree with or, or just we don't particularly like. Right? To, to, to choose to be with the Samaritans meant Jesus had to make a choice to be close, to be proximate to those who, who needed his grace the most. And you're going to need the same courage as well. 
courage to say no to places of comfort where you can live your whole life surrounded by a, a sweet believing community and to seek out community with those who think and, and believe very differently than you. You're going to need courage to, to make space for those people, but you're going to need courage uh, to, to be challenged by those people. Right? It's interesting in Jesus' interaction with this woman that she goes right goes for the throat punch, right? She goes right to this, this, this uh, debate, which means nothing to you and me, but it meant everything to them. This was the crux of their racial tension. This was the crux of their theological disagreement. Which mountain should we worship on? Which temple should we worship in? She is going right for the zinger, the, the, the part that should have, have pushed Jesus away. And we should anticipate that when we let our friends or our neighbors know that we happen to be one of those crazy Christians, that they're going to go immediately to, but what kind of Christian are you? Are you the kind of Christian who affirms what I think about X, Y, or Z, or are you one of those crazy people? Right? It's not an easy conversation to have. It's a conversation that can only... Uh, be you're only going to have the courage for if the grace of Jesus has so transformed your world that you can't help but sit there. And you don't have to have all the answers. Look at her presentation. She said, I don't know. This man made sense of my world. This man made sense of my emotions in a way that nothing else in the world ever has. Christianity is the one religion. You don't need to lay out a whole list of dogmas for them to, to believe in. You need to say, here is Jesus. Take up your concerns with him. Here's Jesus. Take up your, your doubts with him. Here's Jesus. He can be what you need. Third, and probably the hardest of these, the courage to be known. The courage to be known because to be known as you are, to be known that you are a child of God, that the most important thing in your life and in your rationale is, is the story of God remaking the world, is to put yourself on the table. Believe me, your unbelieving friends would much rather you choose the silent option. They would much rather, much rather avoid knowing what you believe about X, Y, and Z. They would much feel much more happy if you guys just circumvented the whole religion talk completely, right? That's why we don't talk about it at Thanksgiving, right? P politics and religion. Because we live in a world that says, you do you, that don't criticize me, don't think you're better than me, that any sort of disagreement is, is a form of, of hate. That's the world we live in. And so if you are going to make yourself known as a follower of Jesus, as one who has been changed by Jesus, then you will be rejected. Maybe not completely rejected as a friend, but definitely you're, you're, you will feel hits to the level of relationship that, they, that many folks are willing to have. And it is, only if, it is only if you have felt so loved and secure in Jesus that you can face their rejection. That's what the woman did. That's what the woman felt... The, such love from Jesus that she was willing to face the scorn of these people who thought, who thought this much of her to begin with before she started pontificating about who the Messiah was. To be couraged to be known is to be rejected. And everything in you is going to want to say, but what if I bring this up and they think I'm an idiot? What if I bring this up and they think I'm a, a bigot? What if I bring this up and they think uh, I'm the, 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 
the ruiner of the world, right? But the question here is, what if you don't? What if you're not willing to make yourself known as a friend, to, to risk that vulnerability with them? What kind of friendship do you have? What kind of friendship is it if, if the thing that's most important to you, the mo- thing that's most important to how you make sense of the world is something that you have to stick in a closet and hide away from their sight so that they feel comfortable? What kind of friendship do you have if you can't be honest about who you are? See, sharing our faith, not as a sales pitch, not choosing silence, is the most natural outgrowth of being a human who encounters Jesus. We talked about building bridges as a, as a metaphor. You all remember a couple months ago, I know you remember, because you sat, every time you had to go across uh, to Arkansas, you sat in traffic for four hours, Right? And with this beautiful Enbridge uh, bridge, right? This bridge that every artist, we were at our show yesterday, half of them probably had the, the Enbridge paintings up on their, their wall. There, it's, a, it's this beautiful bridge that's lit up at night and it flashes and it's, it's, it's beautiful to see from the riverfront. But for those months when our bridge was shut down, what good was it? The lights stayed on, it still looked pretty. In the same way, our, our church can have its lights on, and it can look pretty, and we can, can feel good about ourselves. But if we never invite people to travel across the bridge with us, if we never walk with people uh, across the bridge in a hunt for the grace of Jesus, then what have we built? And the answer is not much. We want to be a church that is so undone by the grace of Jesus that we are driven with courage and compassion to tell our friends what is true about ourselves, to tell our friends what is true of the world, and to say, could this be the Christ? Could this be the thing you've been looking for all along? Pray with me. God, we come as people who... uh, by nature, fear rejection. As people who by nature uh, are consumed with ourselves and of our own world, and yet you have promised to, to, to demolish those uh, straw houses that we want to live in, the straw houses that we want to find safety and security in. And so, Father, I pray that as you transform us by your gospel, Lord, that you would transform the way that we see the world, the way that we engage our friends. Lord, help us to love our friends, whether they are people who agree with us or not, because you have loved us when we vehemently disagreed with you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.